0: Angelus Domini, Nunciavit Marie, eit
1: concepid Espiritu Santo.
0: Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus Tecum, benedicta tu in mul-
2: Hello and welcome to the Liturgical Looking Glass, a program that looks at the Church's liturgy for the week ahead. I'm Tim Hutchinson.
3: And I'm Nick Swabrig, and today on the Liturgical Looking Glass, we've another look back at the music of Easter week and at other music and liturgy that form part of the fifty days of Easter. Tim, do you want to start us off with a prayer and explain why you chose this particular collect?
2: I, I shall. This collect is from um today's mass, and um I just thought it would be appropriate because it's from today's mass. <laughs> yeah, sure. So let us let's pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O oh, God, hope and light of the sincere, we humbly entreat you to dispose our hearts to offer you worthy prayer, and ever to extol you by dutiful proclamation of your praise. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever.
3: Amen. Amen. Dutiful proclamation of your praise. That's a nice phrase.
2: Mm. Yes. These collects are, are wonderful.
3: They are, they are indeed. I'll come back to, to today, a bit later if that's okay, but yes. I'd really like to start. We had, we had a, a kind of wake-up call with Handel's Messiah last week. And I'm just wondering uh, about what something from a little bit earlier, the Alepsalite Cum Luya, uh, which is from the Montpellier Codex, uh, probably 13th or 14th century. The text is rather odd. It's Alepsalite cum Luia, so you can hear the Alleluia there, but the text goes, Alepsalite cum Luia, which means Ale, sing a psalm with a luya. Ale, concrepando psalite cum Luia, Ale, make a loud noise, sing a psalm with a luya. Ale, cor devoto deo totop psalite cum luia. Ale, with a heart wholly given to God, make a loud noise, sing a psalm with a luya. Alleluia. It is quite an odd set of texts. Uh, but clearly, the person who wrote it had no idea of how the Hebrew works, but that's an interesting <laughs> historical fact on its own. And it's I'm particularly fond of it. I was taught to sing it by a monk from Ampleforth, uh Cyprian Smith, who is no longer with us. Um, and um, we also sang it at Maggie and my wedding. Um, We didn't have the instrumentals that you're going to hear with this, where we're going to hear um, a group singing, um, a group called Lux Antiqua singing it for us. So uh, here we go with the Salute, Cum luya.
2: Something very spontaneous about this. It almost sounds like it comes out of a uh if we could call it a plain chant jam session
3: yes, absolutely I think that that that, that hallelujah, we could probably find it if I had wealth enough and time, I could go f- through and find an alleluia like that in the um in the liturgical texts, and then people are jamming over the top It's call and response stuff, isn't it yeah. I think that, that particular performance does it very well. Um, so after a sort of wake-up call like that, Tim, I have to ask, how's your Easter going?
2: It's wonderful. I, I mean, up until just a little while ago, the uh, the weather was amazing and I was really feeling the joys of spring here in Cambridge. Um, but unfortunately, it's just turned grey and wet at the moment, which is a, is a, a literal dampener. But um, okay. apart from that, it's been lovely um, enjoying saying hallelujah again. Yeah. and um I don't know if you have a favorite Easter um passage, but um something that sort of always hits me really hard is one of the weekday mass readings where you have um uh Saint Peter going out to fish again, and there' are those really um very pregnant words where he says um i'm going fishing." Yes. And then the disciples say, We're going with you. And you just get the sense that there's so much behind what's happening in, in those passages after the resurrection. And um and it it's it's I find it a, a time of some of of real calm and reflection, but also with something brooding underneath it. Um
3: yes, I know what you mean. Um for me it's very often it's the it's the the story of the road to Emmaus. Hmm. Partly because when I used to work as a, a catechist, I used to use that story to explain how the Mass works. Two people gather, if you like, in Jesus' name, and they meet Jesus. And they meet Jesus through the uh, the expounding of Scripture and the breaking of bread. And then they recognise that it was Jesus and they proclaim the word after it. And I just think that that was a, s- such a brilliant way of telling the story I do wonder whether it was one of the ways in which the earliest church did, you know, catechesis for people that were preparing for um, their first communion. In effect, uh, after baptism at Easter, it's it's just a wonderful story from that point of view. Mm. For me, personally, however, it's the encounter of Mary Magdalene in, in the in the garden. Partly because uh, I, I'm a great one for going and watering when I need to in, in the garden in the morning, and I. I think sometimes when I'm in the garden, I also am mistaken for a gardener, like Jesus is, um, because I'm not that keen a gardener. I don't know how Jesus was on such things, but um, that sense of meeting somebody somewhere quiet with the birdsong, maybe a bit of dew on the ground—it's it, it's a powerful image for me. And then the fact that she she gets called by her name, which I think is an astonishing, astonishing insight into how we are called or who we are um, but that of course leads us into thinking about the thing that we haven't really talked about this easter which is the easter sequence
2: yes and there's so much for us to talk about in this program that um every now and then we we miss something out and so it was a it was a bit of a pity that we did we didn't get to cover this but um rather late than not at all. Yeah. And um, so we're going to look at the uh, Victime Pasquali Laudes, which is one of the Easter sequences. I'm going to play it first and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. So here it is by the nuns of the uh, Benedictamus Domino of Congregation of Benedictine Missionary Sisters. you were just hearing in english run as follows christians to the paschal victim offer sacrifice and praise the sheep are ransomed by the lamb and christ the undefiled hath sinners to his father reconciled death with life contended combat strangely ended life's own champion slain yet lives to reign tell us mary say what thou didst see upon the way the tomb the living did enclose. I saw Christ's glory as he rose, the angels there attesting, shrouded with grave clothes resting. Christ, my hope hath risen. He goes before you to Galilee, that Christ is truly risen from the dead. We know, victorious King, thy mercy show. Amen. Alleluia. Alleluia. <laughs> and... Um, one of the very first things that I thought of um, covering when we were when we were talking about starting this program was uh, what is a series, um, a sequence. Sorry, <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's it's a thing that you know sometimes they take you a little bit by surprise if you're having to to uh, do the liturgy in a mass you suddenly um, come across these at, at uh, two particular times in the year and you think well. What must I do? And has has the priest remembered? Um, so a little bit of a history, although they're they're quite difficult uh, to trace. Mm. Um, it's it's thought to be a an outgrowth from the melismatic jubilee, which, um, as far as I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Nick, that is the the when the Alleluia is sung with the long uh, endings.
3: Um, yes, and I think that this one particularly links to the Christus Resurrexit. Christus, Christus Resurgence being one of those Alleluias, it does have elements that that are the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, go on, go on. Yeah,
2: and I, one of the things I read was that they were actually written, or um, the theories is that they were written to try and teach the um, scholar how to sing the Alleluias. So, if you like it, it was a tutorial as well. It would have the same elements that you would have. In the jubilee, um, in in these little hymns, yeah. and um, the first time we see them is is appearing in in the ninth century, and they became incredibly prolific. You would have a um, a sequence for just about every feast uh, feast day Sunday that wasn't in a penitential season. Um, however, during the Counter Reformation, they were restricted to four. So we had the this one, the um Paschali, pascali in the octave of Easter. And then the Veni Sancte Spiritus during um, the octave of Whitsun or Pentecost. And then the Lauda Sion um, from the octave of Corpus Christi and the Dearest Era for All Souls Day. Um, and then there was a fifth one that was added in 1727, uh, the Stabat Mater. And that is for the Feast of the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady. So since Vatican II, we, we tend to uh, only hear two of them. And that is this one, which we just played now during Easter time, the Victima Pascale, and um, the uh, one during Pentecost, the Veni Sancte Spiritus, which we will come to in due time. Um,
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, there's also, of course, the orders or some of the orders retained theirs. The Dominicans retained theirs, the Benedictines have retained theirs as well. But not all the orders had them anyway, and not all the orders have retained them. But they are a wonderful way of preparing for the, for the gospel, just another little pause uh, while we listen and, or, or join in. Um, it's interesting to see, I think, that we have these built-in pauses, and I think it's, it's, it's no bad thing for us to, uh, uh, to, to see them, really. Yes. You've got a, you've got a longer one, or it's not that much longer, is it? There's a beautiful one by Palestrina. That's right. Um, do you want to share that with yes, us? Yes,
2: I'm going to play it right now, sir. So, yeah. Here it is. The same text um, done polyphonically by Palestrina. of rabbit holes we could go down looking at different versions of um, that sequence but we need to look forward to the next Sunday Um, and um, remembering that it is not St. George's Day um, that has been moved and we'll say a few words about that in a minute Um, but let's listen to the uh, introit, and this is an English setting of it um, which is quite lovely and here it comes. So, this is the third Sunday of Easter, and um, this is taken from the CC Watershed uh, settings.
4: Shout joyfully to God of the earth, hallelujah. Sing a psalm to his name, hallelujah. Praise him with magnificence, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because of the greatness of your strength, your enemies fall upon you. Before you all the earth shall bow down shall sing to you, sing to your name. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth.
2: Alleluia. So there you hear the antiphon coming in again after the verses have been sung. And um, I haven't had the opportunity to hear a congregation that has taken these specific settings on, but I'd be very curious to hear how it works. And that would be something if anybody knows of that, it would be lovely to hear. But I'd like to hear your opinion, um, Nick. How would you do this if you were to want to take um, these introits and use them? Would you have the the faithful singing the verses? Would you try and get them to sing the whole antiphons? I'm curious.
3: I like the way that they've been composed with those very simple alleluias. We're going to hear the, the Latin text with an exuberant alleluia at the end of it, but they are harder to sing. And a simple alleluia would be something that you could actually get the congregation to learn and join in, so that you had a smaller scholar singing the text and then the alleluias for everybody to join in with. The way that we got them there, I don't mind a soloist doing these. Um, I, I think that there's, a way of listening that is attentive listening, which I think really would help there. However, for a big Sunday mass, you know, let's say the church is full and there's five or six servers and maybe a couple of priests or a priest and a deacon or something. It would be hard to be heard above that kerfuffle without there being, um, uh, sorry, kerfuffle is not a liturgical word, I know. Uh, you know, just the general footsteps and the movement and people arriving late. A soloist would be would be hard put to to do it. A scholar would manage it very well. Whether the congregation would like something to sing at the start is something that perhaps an individual congregation would need to decide about.
2: Yeah, it it feels like it's um, there's so much work to be done to try and integrate these these uh, introits into the life of the sort of post-conciliar church where. Um, we really do want people singing
3: i think there's something to do with sustainability here you know tim if we have a soloist doing these things like i sometimes do the communion antiphon when i'm not there it won't be done yeah and the same is true of a soloist singing an introit unless you have a group of people who know how to do it once you know that soloist moves on or gets a sore throat or or whatever then these things fall apart And I think you do need a a critical mass of people that know and support the idea.
2: Yeah. So we're going to listen to the Latin setting now. Um, Yeah. Here it is. I love the way that Alleluia goes. Sort of starts in the middle, it yes. goes down, and then it rises up again.
3: And and actually, the Vienna Hofburg Capella that we've got singing there have a wonderful way of building that up. They build yes. it up by volume, and I think that this is the point at which I could rant f- till the next program about the the appalling use of the word plain song. This is not plain song. This is expressive from the heart stuff, and I think they do it very well there.
2: Yes. Now, it's not easy for us to find a, a polyphonic setting of this, so we're going to bend the rules a little bit and look mm-hmm. at a similar text by Giovanni Gabrielli. Um And this is appropriate because we have um, St. Mark's Day coming up soon. That will be on Tuesday. And um, Gabrielli was working in the uh, Basilica dedicated to St. Mark. And um, this is sung by the uh, Cambridge singers. And... Uh, with instrumentalists from La Nueva Musica.
3: Isn't that a great piece? Oh, it's beautiful, yeah. And it, it, I've just been looking back um, in preparation for this morning of uh, the text that we've got for this week on Sunday, and they're all jubilate, cantate, that idea of finishing that motet, as, as Gabriele does, with in Letizia, in joy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great piece. Oh. So can we move on to the, the gloria itself? We promised a, a different setting of the gloria again this week.
2: Um, very different, and very different to what we've been playing thus far. So this, absolutely,
3: uh, it's, it's a it's a big shock, though in some ways closer to that Alipsalite Cum luia that we heard at the yes. beginning of. That.
2: Yeah, that's mm. true. Um, what got, we've
3: got here is sorry.
2: No, go no you go first. Yeah.
3: Oh, I was just going to say that we've got here the recording made in St. Peter's at a mass presided over by some by, by Saint Francis by Pope Francis <laughs> in order of uh, in honor of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And I think this is one of those pieces that draws very strongly on an inculturation of, um, of, of music and liturgy, which is brought up here by the fact that we have an, uh, some traditional Argentine musicians and a, a choir from Rome, the Musica Nova Choir. And it's the, uh, the Gloria from the Missa Criola, which I think is a beautiful piece of music when we're listening to it, can I ask that everybody has a, a listen to that heartfelt plea for mercy from the soloist, Patricia Sosa. And then after it, when we've got this idea of have mercy on us all, then the the first themes, those first exuberant, very rhythmical themes from traditional um, from traditional Argentine music come back again at about five, five minutes in. I'd really love us if we've got time to hear the whole lot because I think it's an amazing piece of music.
2: Here it is.
5: estou Señor Dios, Cordero de Dios, Hijo del Padre. Tú que quitas los pecados del mundo, ten piedad de nosotros.
2: Well, it's exuberant, isn't it? It is. It's, uh, as I was saying to you, or I commented uh, before, I'm, I'm not altogether sure how I um, how I feel about it. Whether I, whether I think that it's really embodying the uh, kind of liturgical norms in a new way or not, but it every time I listen to it, it does kind of draw me in in a new way. So it's, um, I think one of the things I I, I think are dangers with these things is that they they can become uh, pieces that people uh, sit back and watch as performances, um, rather than a, a chance for everyone's hearts and minds to be lifted up. Um, and I'm not saying that that's not happening. I, in fact, the more I listen to it, I, I do think that it it is drawing one into um, a, a a proclamation of the Gloria. Um, but tell tell me some of your thoughts of this.
3: Well, I, I think for me. I like it as a piece of music. Uh, uh, but most basically, I like the fact that that initial Gloria is set aside and then there is that minute two-beat pause when they're just beginning to pick back up after the you know, have mercy on us, we're back into the Gloria. It's almost like those two seconds are there for us to draw breath and to experience the, the Holy Spirit working. However, I think you could also say the same of some of the Mozart Masses that I can't mm-hmm. honestly see having a liturgical use either. They are beautiful okay. meditations on the Mass, but whether they are something that could be liturgically done these days is is something of a challenge, I think.
2: Yeah, that's true. I think we could have a whole episode where we talk about different settings of the Gloria, and perhaps we should at some stage. Um, I've heard some really interesting ones, which I, I wonder whether one could find recordings of in in South Africa, um, with different um, local dialects there. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's it's a pity that many of these things aren't recorded, but I guess that's sort of, uh, you know, how, how it should be in some ways, just the, the local church sort of doing what they should be doing. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about why this Sunday is not St. George's Day,
3: well, this is me doing my I've, I read it on Twitter thing. But there has been a certain amount of it's not really St. George's Day or it has to be St. George's Day. Because I think there is a, a clash here between uh, the Anglican calendar, which sets, if you like, the state, the state feasts, if we want to think of it like that. And uh, what we've got in the New Roman Rite, in which the saints days are set aside very largely in in preference for the, the Feast of the Lord, which is the Sunday. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's why we're doing it. We will be celebrating St. George on Monday. I might just to make the point by myself a rose and wear it on Monday just to, to, just to point out to people. But St. George is, is actually worth celebrating his uh, stories, and I'm hesitating to call them much more than that, uh, basically him being executed five times. Give him the title Megalomata. The, the, the great martyr. And he's one of the 14 saints that in the Middle Ages was thought of as one of those people you could always go to for help. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of the 14 holy helpers. So I think that you know, we, we can't set him aside as such, but we do have to recognize that the story of the risen Christ has to, certain, to some extent not to be overshadowed by a, uh, by a patron saint. There will be celebrations, I'm sure, in lots of churches uh, on Sunday. And internationally, I'm sure that there are other countries, Georgia being one of them, that will want to celebrate St. George uh, at a a time which is their traditional date. Mm -hmm. In England, certainly, he should be celebrated on the Monday, and I can understand why that is, too. (laughs) Um, However, rather than just set him aside, i'd like us to to listen to the communion for a martyr in Eastertide, and after it i'll I'll tell you why I think that um, these Eastertide alleluias or these Eastertide um, antiphons are are so important for us. so this is from the scholar Gregoriana Pragensis and has a wonderfully exuberant alleluia, and you know that I like my exuberant alleluias.
2: Able to have seen this, but um, Nick is uh, has the the text in front of him and the, and the plain chant, and he's he's uh, beaming uh, with joy.
3: <laughs> I'm sorry, I was also waving my hands, but hoping that that nobody could see. That. Oh, glad that nobody could see that.
2: Nobody, I could see it. <laughs> oh,
3: you could see. it, Well, there, there there's um, there's a joy for you as well. Um, oh, great! I'd like to follow that with the tropadion, on the the verse, if you like, of from the Lebanese tradition. Uh, we're going to hear a, a Tropadion of St. George. And then I'd like just a, a little word on why I think that the, these martyrs are so important in yes. Easter time. Uh,
2: I feel like yes. it's, it has. Oh, it's like a war cry, and you can almost hear the um, the enjoyment in these male voices as they're all singing together. It's and ah, the it's rhythm so of
3: the troparion allows you to, to to hear the marching feet, don't you? I think that there's that. Uh, yeah. well, is inescapably. Uh, linked with with army, and I, I can see why when you hear it in a piece like that. I think it's great.
2: That's the kind of liturgy you hear in the Melkite rites, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Because yes. uh, I've I've went to one Melkite liturgy, and it was it was very much that that kind of um, that kind of chanting.
3: Yeah, it's a very powerful piece. Uh, short, but it really does give you an, a sense of why you're celebrating this feast. I think that, that that's really. Lovely from that point of view. The use of these um, different texts, particularly in the Latin Rite, around martyrs in Easter time, always strikes me as, as interesting. We change our liturgy in the Mass and in the office so that the text is different, so that we're looking more and more at the idea of the martyr as united with Christ in his suffering and in his resurrection. I think that's probably why all these uh, stories of St. George being killed but coming back to life again uh, are linked. What we've actually got here is a reenacting of the promise of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one reason why he fits very well here, although this putatively uh, coming up is, is the date of his death in 303 of the Common Era. I'm not quite sure how we know that with the exactitude that we do but we've got the sense of George as a wonder worker, but also someone who simply stands up against authority and says enough is enough and suffers horribly for it. That's the same vision that we have in the Book of Revelation, which again, we read during the Office of Readings at this point. It becomes that important part of why Christians are the way they are. And also that text, the Book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, also sets the scene, sets the agenda for martyrs throughout the ages within the Christian tradition, people who are not afraid. They love not their lives even unto death. Mm. That's, I think, why we have them at this point at this point, and why St. George works so well as one of the first saints that we meet after Easter, certainly this year.
2: Yes. You had something you wanted to, to bring out from St. Mark's Gospel.
3: Well, St. Mark is, is, if you like, a little bit overshadowed in the English tradition and by, by St. George. But I do think that Mark is, is the first gospel that I read entirely, if you like, cover to cover. And I, I did it on my own when I was 16 because of the way that my course was working. I just had to do it. And I sat and read it. And the power of that rather clumsy text. It's yeah. not the best written. It's always, and then immediately, and then, and then. And when I came to this again in um, my theology studies as an undergraduate, it was explained to me that one of the ways of looking at that is that this is not a text that Mark sat and composed. It's not as thoughtful, if you like, as uh, as Luke. And it's certainly not a, an amalgam of different ideas and texts brought together in Matthew's gospel. It's just a set of, oh, and then, oh, and then. You've only got to look, for example, at chapter six. And then he did this. And then he did that. And then they did this. It strikes me very much that it, it sounds like it's it's memoirs. It's somebody remembering things. Mm-hmm. I have heard someone suggest at one point that if we place the composition of this in Rome, is this is this Peter dictating to to Mark, knowing that he's either going to be executed in a few days or that you know the time is up for the church, or simply that he's getting old and that his own memories are, are not going to be there. With him saying them forever, mm-hmm. it's crisis point in the church that we write these things down. But it's got such vibrancy to it, and I, I think the idea of reading Mark just as a, as a gospel to go through as a text, it really tells you how immediate it is, and again, it's worth looking at at this point in the year.
2: Yeah, that is a very interesting insight into into St Mark's Gospel. Um, so to end off with, um, we're going to have another uh, nod to St Mark. And, um, this is again from Giovanni Gabrieli, and um, it's a setting for twelve voices of the Regina Celli, which is appropriate for this season and we're going to try and look at a different setting of the Regina celli for um every episode in this Easter tide and um this one is under the direction of Paul McCreech and um from the album Blasus. A Venetian Easter Mass. So it's been um, wonderful to to have this uh, another Easter Tide episode of the Literary Looking Glass, and we're going to sign off. Myself, Tim Hutchinson, and um, um, me, Nick Swarbrick. and you can listen to us again next week at the same time. And this episode is also available as a podcast, um, and there are rebroadcast times which you can find on the Radio Maria. Website. And um, so thank you and well, have a happy Easter. Happy holiday. Feasts to everybody for, yes. this, for
3: this next week, <laughs> and particularly for all the Georges and Marks that there are around. And um, I suppose here we go with I feel like our final antiphon, another Regina Celi, which is a beautiful piece by Gabrielli.
2: Here it is. <laughs>